Do you turn to Exodus uh, chapter 14? Uh, reading at the, from the end of chapter 13 uh, and chapter 14. Let me, let me pray for us before we read God's word, that we lift our hearts uh, before him as we listen uh, to him. Uh, Father, we uh, pray that you'd uh, come to us by your spirit uh, this morning. Pray that you'd uh, lift our hearts uh, to the Lord Jesus, that we'd be amazed by your grace, uh, by what you uh, do for us in him. As we come to these chapters in Exodus, as we come to the end of the Exodus story, the story of you bringing freedom uh, to your people, Israel. I pray and open our eyes to all that you do for us in Christ. Pray you'd be feeding us this morning from your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, starting from verse uh, 17 of chapter 13. Uh, The the Israelites have just been thrown out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones with uh, with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of clouds to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath and between Migdol and the sea and in front of Baal Zaphon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And overtook them, encamped by the sea, by Pihareth, and in front of Baal Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and all his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going between the hosts of Israel, before the host of Israel, sorry, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from uh, before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness and, and lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out uh, his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being water them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they, that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord uh, threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. As we start, I'd like to suggest um, that there's one key difference, one key difference uh, between believers and unbelievers, between those who are uh, God's people and those who are not God's people. And perhaps you're, you're here this morning and you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're very uh, welcome among us. Or perhaps you're watching online and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're very welcome. But I do want you to hear this. There's a key difference between God's people and those who are not God's people. And that is that the Lord is with us and not with them. The Lord is with us and not with them. 
We're at uh, the end of the Exodus story. And it's been an epic story of rescue uh, by God. And here we come uh, to the grand finale of uh, the rescue. All epic stories have a a grand finale, don't they? Um, Where the enemy is fully and finally defeated, uh, where the good guys uh, go free. And this is no different. Uh, This is a grand finale to an epic uh, story. We have uh, the Israelites being released and freed, and then uh, the Egyptians saying, what have we done, verse 5? What have we done letting our slaves go? Let's chase off them and recapture them and bring them back. And uh, Pharaoh in our story gathers together a massively strong army, a 600 chariot strong army of all his other horsemen. And he chases after them and confronts the Israelite army, a disheveled band of slaves fleeing for their lives. But in the drama of this story, in the crossing of the Red Sea, as the story ends, what do we find? Well, we find the strong 600 chariot strong army of Egypt uh, dead on the seashore. And we find Israel marching out into glorious freedom. It's like most epic stories, isn't it? Where, where the, the good guys uh, who look weak and, and pathetic and compared to the, the strong enemy uh, triumph at the end. Like, like in Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn and his tiny army go to the gates of Mordor against them, and they end up triumphing, end up victorious, Mordor defeated, Sauron defeated. But in most of those stories, it's somehow the good guys that you find the strength in them. They do the deed, they do the, the marvellous action uh, that brings them freedom. Uh, but in our story this morning, it's because the Lord was with the Israelites. They quite explicitly don't do anything. Verse 13 and 14, they're told to be silent, to do nothing and only watch what the Lord does. The Lord was with them, the Israelites. We see that in a tangible way throughout the passage. In these pillars, in verse 21, these pillars first come in. It's a pillar of cloud by day and it turns into a pillar of fire by night. And these pillars... Uh, kind of form a, a, a theme throughout the passage. They appear there, leading the Israelites, and they appear later as well when the Egyptian host comes. It's the pillar that moves between the Egyptians and the Israelites in verse 20. And later on, it's from the pillar that the Lord looks down and throws the Egyptians into confusion. And the Lord was with them. His presence uh, was with the Israelites. And the Lord is with us, Christians. The Lord is with us. One way of understanding what it is to be a Christian is to understand that the Lord is with us, that we were people who were once dead in our sins, once enemies to God, once cut off uh, from his presence, but uh, now we've been brought in by the blood of Christ. Now we know him. Now we call him Father. Now we live day to day in his presence. And we tend to immediately start thinking about all the things we should be doing because we're people who live in the presence of God. So we should be people who, who read our Bibles every day because we need to be hearing from God. Or we need to be people who, who pray, communicating with God. Or this morning, we need to be people who, who gather with other people 
who live in the presence of the Lord day by day. We need to be loving each other. We need to be loving the Lord. That's what we tend to jump to. But primarily, being with the Lord is about what he does for us. What he brings to us, not what we bring to him. What, what we receive from him, not what we give to him. And in this grand finale of the Exodus story, what does the Lord do for those he is with, like he is with us? And I think there are three like, major things. You could you pick out lots of things, couldn't you? But three major things. He guides his people. He guards his people. And he triumphs over their enemies. So first of all, down, down to verse, up to verse uh, 9 of chapter 14, the Lord guides us. The Israelites have been spat out into uh, the wilderness, into a uh, desert, spat out of slavery. They have no home anymore. Pharaoh and his servants have forced them out. And they've entered a desert. I don't know, uh, children, uh, in particular, if you watch uh, Monsters, Inc., and you've got the scene where the two main characters, Mike and Sully, are shoved through a door by a giant spider. I can't remember the spider's name, but shoved through a door by a giant spider, out into the Himalayan wilderness, and they don't know what to do. Uh, they feel lost, they feel disorientated, they feel uh, directionless. And it would have been easy for the Israelites to feel that way, wouldn't it? After the Passover event, to go out into the wilderness, having just uh, left their homes, uprooted their children, uh, brought their, gathered their flocks and took them out with them, leaving all that behind to feel Kind of just, what, what now? What next? Uh, except that the Lord was obviously and visibly with them. If you ask uh, an uh, Israelite, uh, why are you afraid? Well, he would have said, well, look up there. Look over there. Look at that giant pillar of clouds. I know the Lord is with us, leading us. I know it's him because particularly at night, it turns into a pillar of fire. It's not an ordinary cloud. It moves before us. It goes before us. They could have been certain the Lord was guiding them, uh, dispelling their doubts over their future, over, their, over where uh, they were going. Later in Isaiah, uh, the prophet, uh, Isaiah the prophet looks back on this scene and says that it is the Spirit of the Lord who was leading the Israelites. He identifies the, the presence of the Lord in this cloud as his spirit, as Isaiah 63, if you, if you want to know. And it says there that he put his spirit in the midst of them. Uh, to be in the presence of the Lord is to be led by the spirit of the Lord. And as Christians, as I'm sure you know, we have that better reality than they did in Christ. They had the, the Spirit leading them externally in this pillar, and that would have been amazing. Uh, but we have a better reality that the Spirit that led them externally comes and lives in us eternally. That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of John, it's better that I depart. I don't know if you know that bit at the Last Supper. It's better that I depart. Why? Well, so that the Spirit, the Helper, can come and live in us and direct us through our hearts and mind and souls. 
And we might get into all kinds of mess, mightn't we, when we start thinking about uh, the guidance of the Spirit. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm not planning to go into now, particularly on the, on the how he guides. Um, but, but I think I just want to address the fact that we sometimes struggle with the fact that the Spirit lives, lives in us eternally and we can't see him. It's all right for the, like, it's all right for the Israelites. They, they have the visible pillar. What if I don't always feel the Spirit in me, guiding me? What if, what if it doesn't always feel like the Spirit's work in me? Is that obvious? And it might be rooted in a misunderstanding of what the Spirit is doing. I think there's a helpful principle here from Exodus that helps form our framework of understanding what the Spirit is doing when he comes to guide us. And it's this, that guidance has a goal. Guidance has a goal, and the goal here in Exodus is to get the people to the promised land, isn't it? To get the people into the land flowing with milk and honey, into Canaan. The Spirit's guidance is about getting them into heaven. Uh, So for the Israelites, that would have meant tracking through uh, the wilderness, through the desert. Uh, But for us, how how do we get to heaven? We get to heaven by clinging to Christ, don't we? By sticking to Christ through all the things in this life that might drag us away from him. And so primarily the Spirit's guidance in us is not about physical stuff, physical choices, although that will be a a down-the-stream effect. It's more about the spiritual, helping us live a life of faith in Christ. Can I say, isn't that tremendous comfort? Don't you think the Israelites here would have been com- comforted as, as the presence of the Lord went before them? It's tremendous comfort for us as well. The future ahead of us is veiled, isn't it? We, we don't know don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we have the Spirit. And the Lord is at our right hand, hour by hour, day by day. He says to us, fear not. Whatever your future holds, fear not. I am the one who helps you. He promises to lead his people whom he has redeemed to the promised land. He promises to guide them uh, by his strength to his, in the song later on in chapter 15, he says to his holy abode and to plant them on his mountain. And that is true for the Christian today. He gives us his spirit to make sure we get there. Like the Lord Jesus has won us for himself at the cross, hasn't he? He's paid for our sin by his blood, and he gives us his spirit to lead us safely into his arms. Do not fear, do not doubt what your life will hold. The Lord is with you, helping you, guiding you home. The Lord does not promise to guide us through, if you like, purely green pastures and pleasures in this life. Uh, No, he might lead us, he probably will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we'll get a vivid picture of that in chapter 14, where the Lord leads them. The Lord leads them into a situation where they are completely helpless, confronted by Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other. It's the Lord who stops them in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14 and holds them back 
and then hardens Pharaoh's heart and brings Pharaoh and the Egyptians to Israel so that they are trapped and helpless. And Israel's army, sorry, the Egyptians' army come to Israel. God brings Israel's arch enemy right to Israel's doorstep. And uh, Pharaoh is terrifyingly strong, isn't he? This 600 chariot strong army. And he has a terrifying agenda. He wants to enslave Israel again. Verse 5, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? He wants to rip them back from the Lord and drag them back to the living hell they've just escaped from. And the enemy of the Christian, our enemies, have the same agenda. I wonder if you ever puzzled over what a Christian enemy is. Or one way to think of a Christian enemy is that they are things or people who try and rip us from the Lord, drag us away from the Lord. It's not just people we don't like or, or things that we don't like. People who try and rip us from the Lord. So you can think about the devil. The devil tries to, tries to persuade us to give up our faith in Christ, to tempt us to not live holy lives. Or the culture around us makes us ashamed of Christ or our sin tempts us to wickedness rather than the path of righteousness or even just kind of suffering deathly things bereavement or, or job loss or illness it makes us doubt God these are our enemies things that threaten to rip us from God and in the passage in the midst of their enemies the Lord guards the Israelites and the Lord guards us in the midst of everything that might rip us from him, the Lord guards us. And one thing we need to realise is that the enemies, our enemies, are stronger than us. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I don't know how strong you feel as a person. But your enemies, your Christian enemies, are stronger than you. The Christian is someone who's stalked uh, by a lion. The devil is a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. The Christian is also someone whose who's neck is up to water floundering, drowning in the world that seeks to crush him and drag him away from Christ. Um, if you like a mythical hero, someone like Hercules might be able to fight off a lion while simultaneously drowning, but not the Christian, because the Christian is also diseased by sin. We're not strong people, we're weak people. Our hearts aren't strong, our hands aren't strong, they're frail. We need to realise how strong our enemies are compared to us. And when we do that, sometimes we're tempted to respond like the Israelites respond, responded here in the passage. They went out defiantly, defiantly from Egypt. But when the enemies appear, they begin, fear, they begin to fear greatly, verse 10. And in verse 11 and 12, they stop trusting the Lord. They thought it would be better to die in Egypt than to be with the Lord. And our temptation is the same. When enemies arise against us, even though we once might have been felt confident about it, it might just feel too hard. We give in and cave. We deny Christ with our words and our actions. Or we stop really trusting God 
Internally, externally, we might be you know, going to church and reading our Bibles, but internally, we stop really trusting the Lord, or we return to the sin that tempts us. We go back into slavery to it. It's easier to give in than to fight on and face our enemies. But instead of fear driving us from the Lord, I'd like to suggest that the fear of our enemy to drive us to the Lord. He has promised to guard us. That's what Moses reassures the Israelites with in verse 13. The Lord will fight for you. He is a man of war. He guards you. We see that in a visible way in verse 19 and 20. When the hosts come together, the Lord comes between them in the clouds and separates them. So the Egyptians cannot get at the Israelites to harm them. To be in the presence of the Lord is to be guarded by the Lord. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. Promise the Lord guarding us, protecting us from our enemies, ripping us from his grip. That goes forward into the future that one day he will triumph over our enemies. That's a third thing to think about this morning. The Lord will triumph over our enemies. In verse 13, fear not. Why? Because the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Because the Lord will work salvation for you. One day, there will be no more enemies. One day, the enemy we face today, whether it's the world around us at work, whether it's our sin inside us, will be no more. And the story comes to the absolute climax of God's rescue mission for the Israelites, the crossing of the Red Sea. This is the salvation that God calls uh, his people to see. Now, now, why save them by means of the Red Sea? It's a good question, isn't it? The, the Lord could have or- orchestrated uh, his rescue in any way. He could have brought the Israelites anywhere he liked and rescued them and defeated the Egyptians in any way he chose to. Uh, but he chooses to do it by crossing the Red Sea. Now, why is that? Well, uh, the sea in the Bible has a bit of a deathly feel to it. Uh, it's a mysterious place, isn't it? Uh, that's true today. Uh, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the depths of our ocean floor. It's also a chaotic and destructive place. Again, that's true today. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates that 320,000 people drown at sea every year. The sea is destructive, deathly. So the Israelites had uh, the Egyptian army behind them, but they had this deathly sea in front of them, which means I think there's actually two elements going on in the salvation the Lord works. God brings Israel safely through the Red Sea, and that's the first way. That Israel cross the Red Sea, the dangerous sea, in safety. You can hear in the language that go forwards and the waters part, and God holds back the walls of water so they do not fall on Israel. And they cross on what? Well, they cross on dry ground beneath them. Uh, they pass through and out the other side into glorious freedom. But on the flip side, the other side of salvation is uh, that he destroys the Egyptians. The Egyptians follow. 
And the Lord looks down from the pillar and he brings the wave, the walls of water that he's been holding back, crashing down on the Egyptians. And they are destroyed. And it's interesting, the darkness that uh, has been throughout the passage, that the Egyptians have been facing off against the Israelites in darkness. The darkness disappears and morning comes. The Lord destroys the Egyptians uh, in the morning. I think this event is meant to shape our own approach to our own deaths. I suspect most of us, when we think about our death, I think about it in fear, or at least we've had times when we thought about our own personal deaths uh, with a sense of fear, when we contemplate it. It fills us with fear. That's true of the society around us. You can see it in the response to the coronavirus. People are afraid of their own deaths. That's important to caveat that and say death is horrific. Uh, it is a horrible thing, particularly for those left behind. It is right to grieve loved ones who have gone. But the Christian approaching his own death or her own death should approach, I think, with a measure of confidence, a measure of peace, even, even dare I say, a measure of joy. Because when we go down to death, uh, the dawn breaks. That's the picture in the cross in the Red Sea, isn't it? that they descended uh, into it in darkness, that they laid, went down in darkness and morning broke, so that when we uh, go down to the graves in darkness, when we are laid to rest, even when our bodies de- decompose in the ground, uh, the day is breaking. We are going down in safety. Not even death, not even the Red Sea could rip Israel from the Egyptians, his hold, God's hold on them was too strong. We go down in peace, but we also rise to glory. We come out the other side, and when we rise to glory, we rise to glorious freedom. All our enemies, all the Christian enemies, defeated. Sinful desires will be no more in the new creation. Satan will be crushed beneath our feet. Death will be no more. There'll be no more crying or pain. I wonder how you struggle in the Christian life today. And know that one day the struggle will the struggle will be over because God will triumph over your enemies. Maybe that's something in us still doubts it. How do I really know? How do I really know that I go down into the grave and I come up resurrected from the other side? How can I really be confident? Well, it's because we have crossed the Red Sea already. Because we have crossed the Red Sea already. In one sense, of course, we are on this side of the Red Sea. You know, we still have enemies around us, don't we? Things that threaten to drag us from the Lord. Death is still ahead of us. Resurrection is still ahead of us. But, in another sense, we have already crossed the Red Sea. We already stand on the other side of the Red Sea in victory because we are united to Christ. Because we are united to Christ. So what happens to him happens to us. Or should I say, what happened to him 
will happen to us. And Christ was crucified. Christ died. Christ was buried in a grave. And Christ rose from the dead. God drew him through death. And so God will also draw us through death. And it's so certain, in fact, that Paul can talk about being raised with Christ already, being sat in the heavenly places with Christ, having our lives hidden with Christ. That's how certain our future is. That's how confident we can be. God has done it all already in Christ. All we need in this life to get us through to heaven, the new creation, is Christ. He has gone before us. He will surely draw us after him. What is there left for us to do? There's nothing for us to do apart from to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel and see that salvation the Lord is working out for us. There's nothing for us to do. The battle is the Lord's. He will guide us. He will guard us. He will bring us home. And so it's him who will get all the glory. I don't know if you noticed that in, in, in our passage. That the, one of the reasons why God designed this event this way is to say that he gets all the glory. So the Israelites can say, I did nothing to be saved. God did everything. I did nothing to contribute. That comes out in their song. Sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider. He has thrown into the sea. And when we look around us today and see all the Lord is doing for us, the Lord is with us, all the Lord is doing for us and is certain to do for us and that we do nothing, nothing for our salvation. What else can we do but sing glory, glory to God in the highest? And that is a song we'll sing forever. Let's pray. Father, you have triumphed over all that might hold us back from you. In Christ on the cross, you triumphed over our sin, over the devil, over the world. One day, Lord, you will draw us through death itself and bring us home to glory. Pray, Father, we'd live our lives not depending upon our own strength, thinking that we are strong with our lives and knowing that you are with us and that our strength is in you and dependence upon you, that we are not alone and that you are working out our salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.